following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. What is up, everyone, and welcome to the Diabetes Podcast, where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Gary Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Diabetes Podcast. Today is the second week of April 2020, and I think all of us are living in a very interesting time and place with the virus that's going around in COVID-19. And today our goal with this podcast is not to talk specifics necessarily about COVID-19 and you know the SARS-CoV virus, but um, although that is going to be part of our discussion today between Grady and I and being diabetic, but rather acknowledge the ever-changing environment that we're in right now, and more importantly, how diabetes and the immune system and the immune system of individuals plays a role in infections such as um, developing COVID-19. And additionally, how we as diabetics or anyone for that matter in the world can boost their immune system and increase prevention of health issues such as infections as well as chronic diseases. So with that said, um, you know, the question I see all the time on social media right now is, as a diabetic, I've been told I am immunocompromised. Grady, do I have an increased chance of COVID-19? I don't even understand what this immunocompromised phrase is. Mm -hmm. Yep. And just like with any question that people ask me, it depends. So <laughs> to actually define what, what does immune deficiency or immune compromise actually mean? Um, so when somebody's immune compromised, it's when their immune system is incapable of working at full capacity. And so a, a way of saying, okay, what does that mean for me? Simply asking yourself, how many times do you get sick? Do you get sick every year? You get the common cold? Um, because people who have a harder time fighting things off or a harder time protecting themselves will get sicker much easier. But to define it even more so, looking at the different parts of your immune system and how they're functioning, if it's being produced enough, is a good gauge to see how well your immune system is, is actually going to be working. And so you can do that by looking at different blood tests, even really simple mm -hmm. blood tests like the uh, complete blood count. Um, so that, that basically de delineates how many red blood cells, but more importantly, in this case, your white blood cells, which is your immune system and seeing if it's in the optimal ranges or if it's being depressed. Because if it's depressed, obviously, then they're not going to be able to fight off infections as well because you don't have as much resources to do that. Sure. So what are some of the specifics that, you know, what, what does that mean like on the white blood cell count? Like how could you tell that that is depressed if you look at that blood test? Yeah, so with white blood cell count, the clinical ranges, I think, are much wider than this. I don't ha have the clinical ranges memorized. I just have the functional ranges memorized. And when I say functional ranges, um, I'm looking at optimal function of the immune system. And so I'm not looking at is a person already at a certain point where they have a pathologic disease. I'm looking at it, are they functioning at the optimal level so that they can amount a proper immune response. So having said that, my range that I like to see for white blood cells is at least greater than five. I even like to see it greater than 5.5. And then you can look at the different, the differentiation of each white blood cell. So um, if you get a CBC with diff or with differential is what they... Um, <laughs> that is what it stands for, yes. Yes. Um, then you can see the breakdown of the individual white blood cells and seeing maybe mm -hmm. where the deficiency lies. Sure. And also with that ratio, you can see maybe 
what you're actually fighting because different parts of our different white blood cells will typically attack um, different things like bacteria or viruses or parasites, things like that. You can kind of get a insight into maybe what you're fighting. Yeah, that's, those kind of breakdowns, those general rules aren't absolute rules, but like you said, it's just kind of a, a good idea. Um, and, you know, if you're actually trying to figure out exactly what you're fighting, specific testing is out there, but, you know, mm. that with differential is a good way of, of kind of, okay, yeah, you're fighting this is more bacterial infection, this is a more viral infection. And so, um, can, Grady, do you mind kind of leading us in, you know, what the neutrophils and, you know, lymphocytes and what, so those are all, can you just kind of go as a crash course on what the white blood cells on a CDC with differential, like what those are and what they would maybe mean um, in terms of what you could be fighting? Yep. Yeah. So generally speaking, um, when we look at the differential, our neutrophils typically are going to be the highest. So they should lie between uh, 40 and 60% of that white blood cell count. And um, when they're elevated, you typically will see a bacterial infection. Okay. And the lymphocytes are the next highest. And when they are elevated, you're typically going to find a viral infection. And then uh, monocytes are the mercenaries. They kill everything in sight. Whatever the immune system tells them to kill, they're going to kill it. And so that one's not really specific for anything in particular. And just being um, inflamed or having a lot of inflammation in the body will show a higher uh, monocytes because your immune system is using that monocyte to break things down. Okay. And then um, below that is the eosinophils. And eosinophils can be elevated due to allergies, but they can also be elevated due to parasites as well. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, this is kind of a general thing. So um, it kind of gives us a pathway to maybe go down towards, but it's not 100%. Mm. Yeah, I think especially right now in the discussions we're going to lead into, I think that's really important. So, you know, your neutrophils and your lymphocytes, bacterial versus viral versus monocytes, general infl inflammation, and maybe that could mean more inflammation due to um, autoimmunity or just like you're inflamed because you're inflamed or the eosinophils because you've been eating bananas and you have an IgE reaction to bananas, <laughs> which may or may not have happened to me once or twice. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I think that just understanding that is really important um, and how those differentiate. And you can look at the general percentages. And this is where, you know, working with doctors is really important because you can look at general percentages, but sometimes you also have the numbers breaking down in absolutes. Mm -hmm. too. And those absolutes, depending on the situation, your percentages could be fine, but your absolutes could be off. Mm -hmm. And then saying, okay, well, my absolute numbers are off, but I'm in range. Why do I have less white blood cells then? You know, yep. and then, but then you look at your total white blood cells, you know, it becomes much more. That's why you and I like working with blood so much and doing blood tests because mm -hmm. it, it does really create an interesting puzzle um, that, that could show something like mm -hmm. that. And so I think in general, then, you know, saying you're immune compromised, that means that these numbers have been decreased, whether it's total or there's something there. But if your white blood cells are generally fine, then you're not immune compromised. Mm -hmm. I think that's a safe general assumption um, to make. And so I think anybody that asked that question, am I immune compromised? Like, what are your white blood cells like? And if they're fine overall, even if they're not functionally, like, I mean, if clinically they're out of range and low, then maybe you're immune compromised. But then there's a different conversation, different questions to ask within that functional range. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one more thing that I would – I always like to look at as far as um, immune function goes is also a person's globulin levels. Okay. Um, so typically that's seen when you get a uh, protein, you get total protein, you get albumin and you get globulin. And so globulin, there's a lot of globulin proteins that aren't related to the immune system, but, mm -hmm. uh, but the immune system uses those globulins to make antibodies. So if you have decreased globulin, then you're going to have a harder time um, creating in that immune response because you don't have the stores of supplies that you need to do that. Um, so that's another thing I like to look at um, in regards to um, immune function. So you're saying maybe 
somebody could have white blood cells and immune system that seems fine on paper, but then you see globulin maybe low. And so you're saying, okay, take that as a grain of salt. Like let's look at this clinically and put all the pieces together. Maybe you are immune. Something is going on with your immune system, but because your globulin is low. Is that what you're kind of saying? Like a consideration? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's one of those that you can also, you also want to do that before getting a, um, like a food sensitivity test done because if your immune system is suppressed or you're not able to produce those globulins, then your results can be skewed because you're not producing those antibodies to whatever food. So it can skew those results too. Um, but that's, you know, a topic for another day. Yeah. I was about to say, because now we can easily <laughs> go in a conversation about why is it your globulin low? What's your digestion like? And plenty, yep. of other, plenty of other fun uh, related conversations. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. And then I think it's important to note too, as we're just talking about general, what the immune compromise could mean is the overall tie between the immune system and the endocrine system. Those are very tied to one another. Mm-hmm. And then the immune system, endocrine system is also tied to the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then specifically with the immune system, you know, you, you have to consider vascular, like your blood and yep. then lymph, right? So um, Grady, you mind kind of talking us through what, how maybe these things are connected or some of these things are connected when just thinking about immune compromise and what could, uh, maybe make it harder to fight off, uh, diseases and mm-hmm. infections. Yeah. So lymph is probably one I want to talk about first because it's part of the immune system. So you have several organs in the immune system, you know, I'll list them off here real quick. The thymus, you have the mm-hmm. spleen, you have the tonsils. Um, bone marrow, because that's where your white blood cells are produced, and then your lymph nodes and lymph vessels. So your lymphatic system is the system that pulls waste products away from tissue. So essentially, you have the space in between cells is called your interstitial fluid or your interstitial space. And so you have fluid in that space, and your lymph pulls that fluid away from those tissues because that fluid typically has waste products in it because those cells, you know, they're burning up energy, they're doing their job and they're excreting those waste products out. And so you want to remove that. So that way it's not in a toxic environment. So the, the mm-hmm. cells stay healthy. And mm-hmm. so it pulls those things away. And as it's pulling those things away in the lymph vessels, they, that fluid in, in the contents run through lymph nodes and lymph nodes act as almost like filters So they filter that fluid and they filter it in a way where in those lymph nodes, you have white blood cells. And so if there's any crud or um, bugs or um, viruses or something like that in that fluid, those white blood cells, that's a good, a good stopping point for them to like, Hey, we're going to clean that out of there, at least kill it. So that way we can detoxify it and get rid of it. Mm Mm-hmm. And so your lymph is a very important component of your overall immune function, because if your lymph is not flowing very well, that fluid becomes stagnant, things can fester, they can grow, and it becomes harder for your body to get rid of that infection. And that's one of the things that I focus on a lot with people is getting their lymphatic system flowing very well. Um, So we do, you know, different types of adjustments, we do different types of home therapy stuff that they can do at home um, Mm -hmm. to help keep their lymph flowing. So that way their body is is able to get rid of stuff, kill stuff um, and get better quicker. I think that's really cool that, you know, as a chiropractor and so I guess somebody even just, you know, you have a typical medical model, allopathic model, and then you have not even saying like non-allopathic, but even just something that you could generalize as maybe like physical medicine, like working with the body, mm-hmm. right? Or, um, and some people might be mad that I even just said those two words together. But um, <laughs> point is, though, you're doing manipulations of some kind with the body, and you're working with them directly to get those that lymphatic flow moving. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so foreign to, to so many people. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's I mean, you see the results with your patients in your office and um, plenty of other chiropractors and people that do similar type of techniques uh, see it as well. And I think more and more people, um, or at least maybe if this is the first time you're hearing about such things, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely, 
an interesting thing to look into uh, with providers that are trained to do those things. So that's mm -hmm. cool that not only you do it with them, but you teach them maybe some home exercises to try to help that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you may be thinking, how do I know if my lymphatic system is working well? Because a lot of people may not even heard of the lymphatic system or they've heard of it, but they don't really know much about it. I feel like um, out of all the body systems, the lymph system is like the one general people don't know the most. Like I know it, it gets neglected a lot. Mm -hmm. And I find it's, in my practice that it's, it's important for a lot of things. And like working with that helps with a lot of different things, even things you wouldn't even really expect to help with. Um, so what to look for maybe um, would be things like obviously swollen or tender lymph nodes. So you have a lot of lymph nodes that are up around your jaw, your face and into your neck. So if mm -hmm. you have, if you can feel any little bumps and they're sore and tender, then that can be a sign that your lymph is not flowing very well. Um, another one that is very common, but people kind of brush it off as maybe normal is just being really sore and tender all over. And especially if you have a lot of soreness after doing exercise, it doesn't even have to be a lot of exercise. If you, you know, do something just a little bit outside your normal and you're just really tender and sore, then that's probably a, a big sign that your lymphatic system's not draining very well. Because if you're burning a lot of energy and you're using your muscles a lot, that's, that's using a lot, that's creating a lot of metabolic waste and a lot of mm -hmm. cell waste. So it's getting out into those interstitial fluids and if you're not able to pull that waste products away, that, like I said, all that stuff just kind of sits there and festers and creates more inflammation. And so that's why you feel so sore and tender and because that lymphatic system's not flowing very well. Right. So with the lymph system compared to, you know, the circulatory system, you know, with your arteries and your veins, you know, the blue and red that you'd see in a textbook, um, this is green in a textbook, yeah. but, um, <laughs> but, you know, that obviously your heart pumps that that is the driver of that and then the difference between arteries and veins with valves and whatnot but the lymph fluid gets moved through muscular activity mm -hmm. right so both like the surrounding muscles like because they're in your leg they're everywhere those muscles need to be moving to kind of help push that so moving those muscles around that lymph fluid is really important and like you were saying to get that flowing there is no heart there is no kind of factory that pumps your lymph fluid and if you're not moving it's going to stay exactly where it is mm -hmm. which is an interesting thing about the lymph system yep yeah people who sit a lot whether that's you know you at your job working at the computer or whatever it is typically have a lot of uh lymph flow issues um, because your lymph drains in your thoracic um, inlet here, which is, you can't see me on video, but it's basically above your clavicle, that space right there, that's kind of where it drains. And so if your shoulders are rounded forward, it closes down that space, makes it really tight in there, and it makes it harder for that lymph to flow. So mm -hmm. people who sit at their desk a lot, I find almost always have lymph flow issues. And so by working on that, we can um, help with a lot of things. Right. So just kind of going off that, I mean, just as chiropractors, like you have the rounded shoulders, not only is that stopping going in from the thoracic inlet, but then that's shortening all, you know, your pecs, that's shorting like all the muscles then around it and it makes it tighter. You know, if you have chronically rounded shoulders and those muscles are tight, it's going to just be a barrier and it's going to be harder for those muscles to work more efficiently if mm -hmm. it's just constantly just at a way shorter length than what it's supposed to be able to contract and, and relax at. And so that's another benefit of looking at the body as physically like chiropractors do mm -hmm. when it comes to like lymph drainage, like you're kind of talking about. Yep. Um, so that's, that's the lymph system. So it, it is not a new system we just made up at the spot. <laughs> yeah. I, f I feel like we finally got some justice for the lymph, lymph system. <laughs> right. It's about other factors that play a role in your overall immune system, which I guess we really won't go into because there's plenty of other things to talk about today. But I mean, the endocrine system, which, and then specifically your vascular system. And that's kind of the, the, when it comes to being diabetic, which we'll talk about later, um, you know, the vascular system can easily be damaged, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, that plays a role in neuropathies and things like that. And so how your, not only your lymph system and your overall immune system, but your endocrine, your vascular, all these things add up to your ability 
to fight infections and continue to be healthy. Um, it's not just what can we do to boost our immune system, but what can we do to live a healthier life? Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so preparing, I think a big part of the conversation moving forward when it comes to, you know, COVID-19 and, and this virus and this pandemic is, you know, some people are taking like the approach of fear, like not shaking hands. Like that, that seems ridiculous to me, mm. but um, you know, how can we prevent this? Well, we prevent this by becoming healthier. Exactly. And, and that's, that's the best way to do that. And then you do that in through a variety of ways. And, and that is, I think needs to be, once this all settles down, I think that has to be part of policy changes and that has to be part of how we all live our lives of living healthier lives or else things like this will continue to happen and continue to devastate us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like you said at the beginning, we are in a ever changing environment. So if you expect this to totally go away and never come back, um, I think you're going to be sorely mistaken. And so what can you do to keep yourself safe or not live in fear for the rest of your life. Well, that's by making your body healthier, making it a, you know, virus killing machine or a bacteria killing machine. So that way, anything that comes your way, you're going to be prepared for your body is going to be prepared for and therefore, um, you don't have to live in fear for the rest of your life. Right. And there's a lot of fear going on out there. And so, um, We'll kind of continue to talk about that throughout the whole discussion, but you know, we kind of gave a general overview of what immune compromise kind of is, but like, what does that mean for diabetics, right? Because mm -hmm. um, if you go on CDC's website, you know, you go on a couple other like big sources, big government sources, diabetics are, are labeled as those that increased chance um, of whether it be they say at that moment catching COVID 19 and getting that condition. Um, or are they saying, um, you know, complications and diabetics just period are labeled that way. Well, that's a too general of a statement. Yeah. Like type there's diabetes is complex as we've talked about. I mean, type one, type two, gestational pre-diabetes, there's so many other variants. Um, and then looking at the individual as a diabetic is needs to be addressed. And there's so many other things going on with their immune system. Like, the, the immune system of a diabetic generally is much different than somebody who has cancer and undergoing chemotherapy. Exactly. That's drastically different. That's immune compromise. Mm -hmm. Or somebody who has like HIV AIDS. Like that is like those, a diabetic is not at the same level of that immune compromise. And I think it just making a general statement is, is scary for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I think it's reckless because yeah. to label somebody automatically as immune compromised just because they were diagnosed with diabetes, um, I think is just reckless. Like it's, mm -hmm. um, you know, it fires me up because that's just not how the body works. Like, yes, I, I agree with you that there's some e immune dysfunction because ideally you don't want your immune system attacking your pancreas, obviously. But at the same time, the immune system isn't that simple. Mm -hmm. And by looking at the things that we talked about with the white blood cells, with the globulin, you can get a better idea of, are you able to amount a immune response to something that is foreign? And so to just say that just because you have a condition, you are immune compromised, like I said, is reckless because you have to look at how that person's body is functioning overall. And so looking at, looking at those things with the white blood cells, looking at their other, other body systems, like their lymphatic system or their circulatory system to say, okay, is that functioning well? Because those are important for the immune system. And then you can give a complete picture and say, okay, you are, or you aren't, or maybe you're on that borderline. And so I think people, and I say mainly doctors just need to be, um, more careful with what they're saying to individual, especially individual patients, but then also to the public to make general statements like that as again, just pushing more fear. And um, I feel like it's not constructive fear, like fear can be used constructively. But if you're just saying somebody's immune compromised, you're not, you're almost casting them, you know, casting them out, you're not giving them a chance. If you're right. saying, you know, if a patient comes in and is worried about uh, being immune compromised and I can show them their blood work and talk them through this and say, Hey, 
this is what we need to do to make sure your immune system can um, work properly, then it's giving them hope. It's giving them a pathway to say, okay, maybe I'm not, you know, working right right now, but we can get there. And so I don't have to worry about this all the time. Right. And it, it, it kind of fires me up. But at the same time, I, I understand why that statement is made, um, especially in this ever-changing situation, because there's so many things to manage. <laughs> it's, it's like, all right, mm-hmm. diabetics are included, move on, got you know, to deal with this and that. Yeah. Um, in terms of those making big decisions in terms of uh, whether it be governmental or what we're studying, you know, whatever. But, and the reason why diabetes was included on that list is because there is a clear correlation between diabetics and infections. Mm-hmm. Like that is very clear. I mean, you look at diabetic foot disease and ulcers and gangrene, like on diabetics feet, like there's, that's a really easy example to point out, like just on the spot. And so, yes, it makes sense that they include it there, but there's so much fear going on. I think it's up to people to continue to speak out and say, you don't have to be afraid. Like they're saying, like what is actually going on? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think, I think I, I'm, going off so hard mainly because like I look at it from a type one diabetics point of view and specifically kind of my point of view where, okay, yes, I'm type one diabetic, but I take care of my body very well. I eat the right things. I exercise, do all the right things to keep my body functioning well. And so to be automatically labeled as immune compromised, um, you know, sets me off. But at the same time, like you said, they do have a good point um, because with diabetics who aren't controlling their diabetes or diabetics who have a lot of other complications because, um, and I'm thinking more, you know, kind of more towards the uh, type two diabetes where um, they typically have a lot more complications with the cardiovascular system, with your kidneys. So that's your elimination systems with your liver. Um, That has a lot to do with getting rid of, of crud and your immune system. So, um, Yes, I, I think there is a lot of validity to that. But again, especially when it, in regards to a type 1 diabetic who is taking care of themselves and making sure the blood sugar is good, it's not the whole story. Yeah, I agree. And so before kind of getting back to, to I agree with what you said, um, before I kind of want to dive a little bit deeper in how then the immune system of a diabetic then is, might be different because um, I agree with you, but I think it's important to maybe kind of talk about how and why that's a true statement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so di- diabetes and immune system, I think I want to kind of clarify um, different ways of talking about the immune system and, and what um, you can categorize parts of the immune system as. So you have, and we were talking about this earlier and how um, this is, in my opinion, uh, this is what ca- can make immunology kind of confusing because not everything's in a clear box, um, like other, like other divisions of health. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, there, you have something called your innate immunity and adaptive immunity. And innate immunity is what it sounds like: something's inborn, something that you're born with. It's normally your first line of defense when you're exposed to a pathogen of some kind. Then your adaptive immunity, as humans, is there to recognize it initially and then create a faster response after you've been first exposed. Mm-hmm. And then you have something called humoral immu- immunity versus cell-mediated. And those, these two innate immunity, adaptive and humoral and cell-mediated, these four aren't like in a line. They're not necessarily like, have crossover. So humoral immunity, it's immunity that more deals with antibodies, proteins, antimicrobial peptides. Um, those are what humoral immunity is versus cell-mediated which is immunity that has to deal with cytokines or chemical messengers and, and that type of cell-to-cell communication, but besides this more of a, this protein um, type of effect. So you can, can generally divide into those uh, effects, I guess. So as a diabetic, the humoral immunity, so the immunity that deals with those antibodies and things like that, is thought to be unaffected by glycemic control as a diabetic. So easy proof that, so I have a couple of resources that we're going to link, but, um, you know, easy proof of that is just the, how effective vaccines are with diabetics versus non-diabetics. There is no decrease in effectiveness of overall vaccines versus diabetics and non-diabetics. And, um, and that's because the immune system, the humoral immune system of a diabetic 
has the capability and the machinery to develop antibodies. And that can be with vaccines, that can be with just regular exposure to pathogens, that could be with whatever. But the humoral immunity has been shown not to be affected. And the reason why that is thought to be unaffected with diabetics, because the major cell types that contribute to humoral immunity is your lymphocytes. And so this is normally your P, B, and T cells and natural killer cells in terms of your immunity. So your B cells essentially end up creating antibodies and T cells can, are used in a variety of different ways. And natural killer cells are a hybrid of a bunch of different things, but I don't want to get too in, in the nitty gritty. But I think it's important to say that these lymphocytes are unaffected by glycemic control. That's what the summation of the data in a 2017 textbook will tell you. Mm-hmm. Is that, and textbook is a primary literature, it's not going on PubMed, but when you look at the textbook of diabetes <laughs> that was published in 2017, and it's this tertiary, like this different order of, of research, it's said to be, it's so sound, the research, right? That it's like, this is it, right? Mm-hmm. And so humoral immunity is not affected by glycemic control, meaning your B and T natural killer cells and your lymphocytes should be working fine with your glycemic control. That being said, there are two different types of immunity that are affected. That's cell-mediated and your innate immunity is thought to be affected by glycemic control. So your cell-mediated, like I said, those cytokines and things like that, those chemical messengers, um, that is affected. Um, And so things like phagocytosis, which is a fancy word for essentially immune cell eating other cells or eating uh, engulfing other types of pathogens. That is thought to be affected depending on the glycemic control. So that's one part of the immunity that can be affected with glycemic control. Another part is that innate, that initial response. Um, So that includes a lot of activity from neutrophils and monocytes. Those types of things can be affected and have been shown to be less potent in those with diabetes. So, um, and a side note, I think too, when we're talking about innate immunity, and that's just because we're talking about diabetes, Insulin resistance is inflammatory, in mm-hmm. part because there's a correlation between insulin resistance and macrophage activation. Yep. And so you have upregulation and overactivation of macrophages when you have insulin resistance. And that macrophage activity comes from the immune system. So the innate immune system that creates the inflammatory chemical messengers in these metabolic conditions has a part to play with insulin resistance. And so again, insulin, so then you can think about it this way, insulin resistance and, and that dampening of that metabolic effect is going to change the activation of macrophages and other inflammatory and immune chemicals, which then can change this type of innate immunity and this type of cell mediated immunity. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. And then when it gets dampened, these types of macrophages activity can be dampened and then it skyrockets in response. So it's like you have this not as much activation of these cells and then you skyrocket it. And Mm. so that's part, and we can then even see that just with how we use insulin, right? The yo-yo effect, like you see all these spikes and that's the same thing and what then other types of cells will do in response to these spikes of insulin and things like that. Yep. Yeah. So there's an interplay there. The immune Mm -hmm. system affects your blood sugar, your blood sugar affects your immune system. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's like, that's always the frustrating part about the human body. Everything's connected to everything. So, um, you know, making sure your blood sugar is good will help your immune system. But then also you have to worry about, all right, what are the things that's happening to me that are causing inflammation that's affecting my blood sugar? Right, right. Yeah, it's, and that, that comes with infections too. And, uh, and so in terms of this, you know, you got to watch it both ways because it's not just one leads to the other. It's they both lead to each other, mm-hmm. right? And so what I mean by that is overall, the a diabetic's immune system is dampened more so towards bacterial infections. That's where there's an increased risk. Now, that's not to say that there might not be increased risk for viral infections for diabetics. That's not what I'm saying um, by any means. But what I'm saying is that there's definitely more data suggesting specific bacterial infections are at a greater risk because of that dampened neutrophil activity, because mm-hmm. that that dampen, um, you know, white blood cell and monocyte activity, or sorry, macrophage. So that dampened effect makes it harder to fight those bacterial infections. And, you know, things like 
you can still get infected with viruses as a diabetic, like hepatitis C, very clear cut example of how like hepatitis C and diabetes has a correlation. Hepatitis C is a virus. Um, and actually people sometimes think that hepatitis C could be a spark in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, mm -hmm. which is the metabolic disease for type two diabetes. Right. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to thinking about the immune system and diabetes, it's like, all right, is this a bacterial pandemic? No, it's not. This is a viral pandemic. Right. Mm -hmm. And so all of this being said, when you do have a bacterial infection or a viral infection as a diabetes, um, like you said, it can go both ways. You have the infection can raise your blood sugar, but high blood sugar and high glycemic that is not controlled can lead to a better environment for bacteria to take hold. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure, Grady, have you ever experienced, you know, while you're sick, your blood sugar being kind of wild? Yeah. Honestly, it's hard to remember because I've been sick in a long time. But you're um, with the immune system of circuits. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, when I was younger and I'd get sick, um, I definitely remember always struggling with a high blood sugar, trying to keep it down, even though I really wasn't eating that much because, you know, a lot of times when you're sick, you're not, not, don't have much of an, of an appetite. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I would, I would always notice every, pretty much every time I get sick, I'd notice, you know, a spike in blood sugar and it always stay elevated for the most part. Right. And definitely when I'm, you know, it's, I haven't been sick for a couple of years. Um, but definitely growing up too with diabetes, uh, I saw that effect too. And that's very common. That's one of the fears about infections with diabetes is, mm -hmm. is because then you can ramp up your blood sugar. And obviously that's the main concern with the diabetic, right? Is hyperglycemia. And so part of that is because of cortisol, right? So when you are stressed, or rather in this case, when you're sick, you're going to release cortisol. Cortisol can raise your blood sugar, but also one function of cortisol is actually to lower your immune system. Yep. It suppresses it. It suppresses your immune system. And it's to, your cortisol does that because if you were stressed, since it's just your stress hormone, you don't care about your immune system. You care about getting out of that situation. Mm -hmm. So it makes it's part of the struggle of being diabetic and being sick and with infections is this, this self amplifying both ways. You know, you have high blood sugar because maybe you ate and you didn't, and then whatever reasons it didn't go as well. So now you're higher. Now you're stressed. You have this infection cortisol. And now it's just hard. It's just so hard to fight, you know, mm -hmm. and it takes a long time to get it down. And I think a lot of diabetics can relate to that scenario, but it's because cortisol and other responses that make it so hard. So, um, so that's what obviously one of the fears with it all, but that being said, you know, SARS CoV-2 is a virus, right? Mm -hmm. And what, you know, right now, this is a, such a changing environment. There's, we're trying to use as much observation, not we, it's not like I'm in, <laughs> but um, health professionals and hospitals and people make these decisions are trying to use the best available data as they can. And right now, in terms of real data, it's coming out of China and Italy right now. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, you know, we're slowly, the United States is slowly getting their own data out there and things like that. Um, but since that's been, you know, they fought those earlier and longer than we have um, and things are kind of winding down in those countries a bit, they can actually um, really have these observational retrospective studies. And you and I were kind of talking about this interesting um, earlier too, uh, Grady, was that, you know, in one of these studies that they published, I think it was like 132 patients or whatever, 70% of these people had lymphocytopenia. Mm, yes. Right? Yeah. Which is decreased lymphocytes. Yeah. Uh, and so in which we kind of said this, so these lymphocytes is what help fight viral infections. But as a diabetic, we're concerned with the dampened neutrophil or dampened with that. Like that's the, that's the more the worry mm -hmm. reality is the data is this bacterial type, um, response and given again, diabetics can also be, have dampened lymphocytes and things like that. But I think it's interesting when you look at it from that perspective, 70% of these people that they studied in China. Um, with SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 um, had decreased lymphocytes. And what, how that mechanism happens, I think you and I were kind of going back and forth a little bit, um, mm -hmm. speculating, um, but it's an interesting response. But at the same time, it's like, if you're a diabetic and you, or you don't have decreased lymphocytes, you're going to like, there's no reason for additional fear. Yeah. And I think this conversation is why is it justifiable to have additional fear? And I think the answer is no, especially when you look at that lymphocytes are decreased and that's not the major issue that people are really concerned about. Yeah. With diabetics. Mm -hmm. 
So in general, like we were kind of saying, it's kind of just saying diabetics are overgeneralized saying, yes, you have an increased risk for COVID-19, but I, I think, I think we'll link a article from JDRF's uh, one of a link uh, on their website. They they've interviewed plenty of doctors and they're saying the same thing though, that you mm-hmm. and I are kind of talking about glycemic control is the important part um, about your ability. You know, it doesn't actually mean um, that you have an increased chance of getting COVID-19. If you have like, if you have, if you are disappointed with your diabetes care, and you're worried about having a six versus 7.3 A1C, which we already have talked about. A1C isn't necessarily the best measurement. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been doctors uh, on record saying, you know, that's not the great, that's not the greater risk. You know, if you have A1Cs of 10 and 12, that's what you need to worry about. Yeah. Cause that means there's a lot of other things going on. A lot of other damage mm-hmm. that could be there. Right. Um, that's a higher risk factor. So if you are scared cause you're at 7.5, 7.9, but your base, you're not that the standard deviation or the variance of your blood sugar is, is not as drastic. You know, you don't have a reason for additional fear. And that's kind of my big takeaway from all of this is um, if you have relatively controlled diabetes, no, you don't have an increased chance of complications. No, you don't have an increased chance of catching this virus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To kind of, you know, make things really simple, for our listeners, like high blood sugar, low blood sugar goes back to what we've talked about in the past, probably many times, which is, you know, it creates, it's a stressor. And so you produce cortisol, you produce, you know, adrenaline, things like that, which then suppress your immune system. So if you're running into a lot of those situations and fighting highs and lows and creating a lot of stress for yourself, that's suppressing your immune system to, you know, uh, a degree so, you know, everybody's different, but it's suppressing your immune system to a degree. So, you know, really focus on taking good care of your diabetes, eating, eating the right things, bringing your inflammation down and, um, you know, keeping your blood sugar in as tight a control as, as you can. Yeah, I think, and to not, <laughs> the worst advice to not stress is to not stress. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, when people say that and people tell me that and I hear people getting told that and, you know, you can't just help but shake your head. But mm-hmm. there's a reason why some people do end up saying that because the stress, the worry, the anxiety that you might feel from this virus and, and this pandemic and, you know, social distancing and all these things. If you're diabetic, you have no more reason to be afraid and, and to continue to do the things you need to do. Um, if this wasn't here, if this pandemic wasn't here, continue to do the things to control your blood sugar that you already Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I guess, yeah, uh, that's, that's my take on it. Like I had my boss called me. He was like, Hey, we know you're, we know you're diabetic. Like, are you good? Like you're totally okay. If you want to like take a few weeks off and stay home. And I was like, as far as I'm concerned, like I'm just a regular 25 year old. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, uh, I had a patient, you know, comment or say to me like, you know, I really appreciate you still seeing patients because you know, I know you're type one diabetic and you're immune compromised. And, um, you know, I try not to laugh, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just one of those things where, um, again, people just assume that that's how the body works. But, um, luckily we both know that, um, it's not that simple and we're doing everything we can to make sure our bodies are working the best, whether that's our immune system or anything else. And so, mm-hmm. so we don't have that extra fear that's going around right now. Right. Right. And I have the confidence because I know I've been doing the right things. Yeah, right? exactly. So, and then the last thing I kind of want to say in terms of the, you know, the medical side of like, am I at increased risk? You know, definitely if you have core morbidities, like that's when you really need to consider what, what am I doing? What is my exposure? Like all those types of things. So yeah, let's get into some comorbidities. I'm going to kind of go through a lot of different things that, you know, our listeners may be um, exposed to or going through um, because obviously, like we talked about diabetes, um, people have other other things going on. And so um, I wanted to kind of cover some of the common things that will, you know, suppress your immune system or make it harder to work. So that way um, we can provide a little bit more clarity on 
um, what we can do for it, and also what other things are affecting it. So um, you talked about before, or mentioned before, that obviously cancer and um, and those things can suppress your immune system. So specifically, bone marrow cancers will undoubtedly suppress the immune system because that's where your mm. immune system is created is in the bone marrow. And then, but then at the same time, some of those uh, chemo drugs will also do the same thing. So if you know people are on chemotherapy or have cancer, obviously they need to be much more diligent about what they're doing hygiene wise and, and all that stuff um, to make sure that they're, you know, decreasing their chances of getting an infection, whether that be bacterial or viral. Uh, but then also the medications like you were kind of talking about. So we talked about cortisol being a um, suppressor of the immune system. So mm -hmm. if we were to give somebody a corticosteroid, then that's that acts very similarly in the body and it suppresses your immune system. So that's a medication that um, can do that. Um, there's other me medications that can do that. Um, you know, some, some other ones would be like a tumor necrosis factor inhibitor. Um, anticonvulsants can also do that. Uh, but one common one that a lot of people take is actually NSAIDs. So, mm. um, so even even in regards to what we're experiencing right now, because there's some reports from France um, that young patients that are on NSAIDs and otherwise, you know, are deemed healthy, um, you know, fit and well, have developed more severe COVID symptoms um, than um, patients who are not. So I think that's that's an interesting point because NSAIDs are just so common in our society today. Mm-hmm. Um, so just kind of, you know, another thing to be aware of. And that's what, that's kind of where a lot of us chiropractors are fighting to stay open is because we want to help people stay out of pain and stay out of those emergency rooms because of pain, but then also doing the things that help support their immune system. So that way they don't have to, or, you know, decreasing their pain so they don't have to um, go towards insects to um, relieve that. Right, right. Um... And to clarify, for maybe anybody who doesn't know, what is an NSAID, Dr. Grady? Oh, my bad. Sorry, an NSAID <laughs> is a non-steroid anti-inflammatory drug. So, um, for example, ibuprofen um, is a common one that um, people will take. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Thank you for clarifying that. Mm -hmm. um, so, along with the cortisol and um, corticosteroids, we're talking about kind of stress in general. So... Cortisol, adrenaline, um, caffeine. So caffeine can um, put a stress on the nervous system and create stress in the body. So, um, you know, not being reliant on your coffee or your NOS drinks, um, that will, that will, your immune system, <laughs> your immune system will thank you for that. <laughs> it's not just nitric oxide to increase blood flow. It's not, yeah. just, that's not the only thing. Either. I wish it was that. I wish people were drinking more of that and not, not the, nice. that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Continue. Uh, but then also kind of on the same side of that coin is sleep. So sleep deprivation can severely suppress your immune system. So does that mean I can sleep like five hours and be okay? Uh, unfortunately not. Okay. That qualifies as sleep deprivation? That does. So yeah, anything less than really seven hours is starting to be classified as sleep deprivation. Yep. I slept for like nine hours last night. It was actually really nice. Nice. Yeah. I normally don't get that. Oh, I know. Anyways, continue. I'm sorry for interrupting. Um, the other thing is we kind of touched on this a little bit, but diet. So if you're eating a lot of sugar, you're going to have a hard time fighting off uh, different, you know, all the different uh, microbes that can get in, especially bacteria, because bacteria love sugar. And so I, I found a few articles. I'm just going to kind of quickly um, uh, summarize what we found with the diet. Um, that a study found that 100 grams of carbs um, in that meal significantly reduces neutrophil phagocytosis, so basically the function of the neutrophil, starting within 30 minutes of that meal and lasting more than five hours. 
So if somebody's constantly eating more than 100 grams of carbs, specifically sugar, then they're always having a suppressed immune system to some degree. And I think if uh, my, my memory corrects me, like a bottle of Coca-Cola, which I don't buy, but I'm pretty sure I, if I remember, it's like around 76 grams of sugar, one bottle, like from a vending machine. Yeah. Yeah. It's... So you have one, one bottle of Coke plus something else. There you go. Yep, exactly. And then with the lymphocytes, there was a study done with those that 75 grams depressed the lymphocyte response. And obviously that's fighting a virus or typically is fighting a virus. So, you know, whether you're worried about bacteria or viruses, if you're eating a lot of sugar, not a good idea. Then another thing we need to talk about is also aging because... You know, we talk about age as not being a number, and that's completely true. I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, but at the same time, the older we get, and I, I would say more biologically, the older we get, the fewer T cells that we produce, the fewer macrophages that we produce. So basically, the fewer white blood cells we produce as we get older. And mm. so... Um, that's why older people or elderly people are always kind of deemed somewhat immune compromised or immune deficient, or they need to be careful um, or stay inside is because they typically just don't have that robustness of their immune system because they're not able to produce as much. Then we get into, we've talked about lymphatic flow. Um, I just want to reiterate that lymphatic flow is really important and making sure that that's going um, is really important to carry your immune system around, filter all that crap out of your system. So that way um, you can fight off those infections a lot more efficiently. Then also we have the liver and its role in the immune system. The liver, we've, like we've talked about, is important in a lot of different things in, within the body, but it's also really important for your immune system. It's where your proteins are um, converted and produced to produce the things that you need for that immune system. So specifically, we're talking about what we talked about before, which was globulin. Globulin is, is uh, where you get your antibodies from. And so if your liver is, isn't healthy or it's not working properly, then that's going to impact your immune system. Um, it also has a big role in your lymphatic flow as well. Also, your blood flow. So if your liver is really gunked up and it's got a lot of toxins that it's trying to get rid of, then those other systems can suffer, which those other systems also impact the immune system. But specifically, detoxification is a really important part of um, the actual infection itself. So if you are going through killing off an infection, those things, those bacteria and even viruses, when you're killing those things off and getting rid of them, those, those toxins within those organisms are being dumped into your system. And so your body has to process those things. So whether you're getting rid of them through your elimination systems or you're detoxifying them, um, a lot of times you have to detoxify them before you can eliminate them. And so if your liver is getting backed up or if your liver is just not functioning and it's not ready for all that gunk that's trying to be detoxified, then it backs up into the system. You get a lot of more inflammation and your body has a lot, time, lot harder time fighting those things. And a lot of times I see this in my practice that when the liver is not working efficiently and they're trying to kill things off, that's when their sy symptoms really start because of that re Herx reaction where you're killing all these toxins or these bugs off and they're dumping all their toxins and then boom, that's when it hits you and you're getting brain fog, you're getting headaches, you're feeling really sick, malaise, all that stuff um, because the liver is getting all backed up. So can you explain that, you know, you said a Hertz reaction. Can you explain that all in maybe um, a different way, just in case people didn't quite get what you just said? Yeah, so a Herx reaction is basically where, you're, where all these toxins are being dumped from the organism, so bacteria or parasites or um, viral. Those things, those toxins are being dumped into your system, and your liver has to process that. And so when it's not able to process all of that, like a lot of times there's just a lot of toxicity that it has to go through and it's just not able to keep up. And so when that happens, you get buildup of toxicity in the body and you get 
these symptoms. And so those mm-hmm. symptoms are what we call that Herx reaction. Gotcha. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Great. Another important system is the cardiovascular system. So if the cardiovascular system isn't healthy, your blood flow isn't flowing as well to all extremities, all the way to the periphery. And we see this with diabetes where uh, we get a lot of infections in the feet and maybe even in the hands because out to the extremities are the hardest part to get to. And so if you're having a hard time getting blood to that area and also pulling blood away from that area, you're not clearing a lot of that crud away. And so we see that a lot of times with fungal toenails. So if you have these really nasty looking toenails, it's a good chance that those are fungal infections. And if you have them in multiple toenails, that's usually more of a circulation issue versus just a straight up, oh, I just have an infection in that toe because Mm. your body's just not able to get all that crap out of there. And so it just kind of sits in there and it's able to flourish. That's a nice physical examination, distinguishable fact, like looking at one toe versus all of them and thinking, okay, you know, is this just the immune system fighting off this one fungus versus, you know, the circulatory component? That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So talking about, you know, the cardiovascular system, uh, one thing that is really affects the cardiovascular system are things like smoking and then obviously high blood pressure and hypertension Mm -hmm. is all related to, to these systems, right? And that's one thing that the, that people are looking now at, at the data that's coming out with SARS-CoV-2 and, you know, these strains is how it, how this virus is actually getting into the lungs and, and how people are getting susceptible to it. And that's why smoking, hypertension, these things are comorbidities and things to consider um, in terms of your risk capability during this pandemic is because this virus actually um, goes after this enzyme that's part of the blood pressure control mechanism. And that enzyme is the ACE2 or the angiotensin converting enzyme 2. And you have these enzymes throughout a whole bunch of places in your body. A lot of them are in the lungs. ACE2 is heavily amount in the lungs. You also have them in the heart, arteries, kidneys, intestines. Like they're, they're in a good amount of places, but a large amount through the lungs. So, they, so this virus recognizes this machinery of ACE2, this enzyme, and uses that to then hijack the cells and starts attacking your lungs. And, and this virus then, one of the biggest things people are fighting against is this acute respiratory distress syndrome, right? And it's because of how this virus attacks the lungs. And so right there, easy is connection of how your cardiovascular system then can affect you know, your pulmonary system, your breathing, your lungs. And at the same time, I think I was reading on the Cleveland Clinic's website, um, or was it Kaiser? Kaiser's hospital system, but they were saying how now there's this thought that maybe it's going to be damaging the heart a lot more because um, they're not sure if the virus is attacking directly the heart or if this overall inflammation and and pressure and increased toxic load essentially because of this virus is then too much for the heart to and the cardiac muscle then to handle, mm. right? And so with the exact met mechanism of how this virus is doing everything it's doing and ultimately affecting um, acute respiratory distress. And that's why people are in hospitals are trying to get ventilators and things like that. Um, or if it's heart or, or whatever, or just organ system failure, um, you know, is because of these connections. And so the best thing we can do is continue to, and, and also in the future, just continue to boost our health in the best way possible. Um, and, and I think you're talking about all these other factors that lead into, um, you know, protecting yourself that you just labeled with all these different systems is really important, especially with how people are thinking that, you know, the, the potential mechanism of SARS-CoV-2 is, is actually working. Anyway, so I think we can all agree, or you and I can both agree on Dr. Grady is, is making sure we're doing everything we possibly can whether you're quarantined or if you're still going into work is, is continuing to uh, boost your immune system, which I think we're about to talk about in in just a little bit. Mm -hmm. So thank you everyone for listening to this discussion at this point. And uh, we're going to transition now and talking about what you can do now to boost your immune system, which there's plenty. So um, catch you next time. Yep. We'll see ya. (laughs) 
thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review. It really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can follow us on The Die Buddies Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or moral outrages, you can email us at thediebuddiespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.